reverie, the state of being pleasantly lost in one's thoughts, a daydream. But what if those daydreams turn to nightmares? Reverie True Crime shines a light on the dark tragedies that have happened and are continuing to happen all throughout the world. We interview and work with families to bring awareness to forms of injustice. We explore the depths of cases from around the world to include missing persons, mysteries, and more. Reverie True Crime is found wherever you're listening to this podcast. Remember, you don't have to live in fear, but stay aware of your surroundings. Stay safe and take care. You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Today's case takes us to Etna, New Hampshire, four miles from the Dartmouth College campus in Hanover, near the Vermont border. Dartmouth has 5,600 students and is the anchor of the quaint New England town. Hanover and the nearby village of Etna are considered so safe, people leave their cars running at the post office. Etna's, just for point of reference, Amy, Etna's so small it only has one commercial enterprise, and that is the general store. You've been to towns like that, I'm sure. Yes, that's cute. Etna, in particular, is considered a more high-end area. Hoff and Suzanne Zantop lived in a one-story contemporary home on a three-acre plot of land on Trescott Road. The Zantops had neighbors, but their house was set down a hill from the road and was virtually invisible to passersby. Um, This is one of the factors that led police later to um, think that maybe they were targeted because they were not, you know, so visible. Hoff and Suzanne were both originally from Germany, but they met at Stanford University in the mid-60s. Hoff was a graduate student. He had his B.A. in geology from Freiburg University, but was getting his doctorate at Stanford. Suzanne was at Stanford working towards a master's in political science. Hoff finally earned his doctorate in 1969, and the couple married in 1970. They had two daughters, Veronica and Mariana. In the mid-1970s, both Zantops ended up as faculty at Dartmouth, one of the eight elite Ivy League institutions in the United States. At the time of her death, Suzanne, 55, was the chair of the Department of German Studies. You know what it's like to be the chair of a department, don't you, Amy? Yes, Megan, so do you. It's a lot of work. Yes, Megan, it sure is. Suzanne was a renowned researcher and writer on the subject of German colonialism. Her husband, Hoff, 62, was a professor of earth sciences, specializing in economic geology, the study of ore deposits. 
They were both extremely popular professors with their students, and their home was always open. It was a place for the exchange of ideas, conversation, lively dinners in a salon-like setting. They had so many guests that their friends described their place as being like a hotel, with people going in and out, and that the couple really radiated intellect, warmth, acceptance, and inclusiveness. Articles describe them as, quote, the pillars of the Ivy League school faculty. They were longtime members of the German club on campus and participated in many other activities and groups. I always find these um, interesting, Amy, the campuses or the time periods where professors uh, embrace their students more in terms of sharing, you know, opening their homes to them and having more of a personal connection. I think it's more frowned upon now because there has been too many allegations of abuse. I think so, too. It's also different when you have graduate students versus traditional four-year college students. Okay. On January 27th, 2001, as always, Hoff and Suzanne were hosting a dinner party. The first guest, Roxanne Verona, a professor of French and Italian, arrived after 6 p.m. There was no answer at the door, but it was open. So Roxanne went inside, calling out for Hoff and Suzanne, but received no response. She walked into the study where she had been many times before, and she found them. Unfortunately, Hoff and Suzanne were dead, lying in pools of their own blood. Roxanne then ran to the neighbor, Ashley McCollum's, and dialed 911 at 6.13 p.m. None of this information was released at the time, but both Hoff and Suzanne were stabbed multiple times in the head, neck, and chest. Hoff was lying on his right side with his head on the bottom shelf of the bookcase. There was blood puddled under his body and on his jeans. Suzanne lay on the floor nearby, also in a puddle of blood. There was evidence that the Xantops had put up a fight. There was an overturned small table with a broken leg. There were papers strewn about, an overturned waste paper basket, a tipped over desk chair, and the rug was also messed up. So real evidence of a struggle here. It looked as though someone had been using the office very recently as well, perhaps even when the attack occurred. A white pages book was open to the name T on the desk, and the computer was on a blank screen for an online search site for names and addresses. Lab specialists at the murder scene noted a partial bloody boot print in the Xantop's living room, a bloody boot print on a piece of paper in the study, and boot prints outside the home. A terse police news conference on Sunday would only describe the deaths as, quote, suspicious. They said nothing about how the victims died, whether there was forced entry into the home, evidence of a struggle, etc. According to the Times News, officers told at least one neighbor there was no cause for alarm. Usually police do this when they have a working theory that the victim was a specific target. But I don't think this was the case. And I'm sure that people, rightfully so, were quite worried, and there is cause for alarm. Amidst a clamor for information, New Hampshire Attorney General Philip McLaughlin finally spoke publicly on Thursday, February 1st, addressing the case. The Xantops had been confirmed to be alive at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday the 27th, he said. They were stabbed to death, and it was possible that the killer was someone they knew well enough to allow him or her into their home. From the Boston Globe, Investigators said the Santops usually kept the doors of their secluded home a few miles from campus locked, and evidence suggests that they let their killer or killers into the house. But McLaughlin was quick to point out that they had no suspects at the time. 
The dinner guest, Roxanne, as you remember, told the media that the police had asked her not to talk about the case. Isn't that interesting? She's doing a media report. Did they suspect Roxanne at all since she was the one who found the body? I don't think that they suspected her, to be honest. Um, For some reason, you know, maybe it's a tactic. Sometimes investigations, they keep everything close to the vest. Sometimes they need more information. So they wanted to keep this quiet. But in the absence of official information, we know what happens, Amy. Rumors begin to fly and they're printed in the media. The campus went into upheaval when the word of the murders spread. The college paper... Um, named the Dartmouth, posted on its website within hours and immediately crashed from too much traffic. The case of two murdered professors at an Ivy League school catapulted into national headlines. And the lack of information from law enforcement contributed greatly to the dissemination of rumors, wild theories, unfounded gossip, and innuendo. Everyone wanted to know how the Xantops knew their killer. Remember, police said that they believe the couple had allowed access to their home, to the person who killed them. Do you think that's just simply because there was no sign of a break-in? Yes, I think it's because there was no sign of forced entry. It's also possible that there was a door unlocked and somebody let themselves in. Absolutely. Rumors swirled that it was someone that they met at the gym, a member of the German club, and so on. From the Atlantic, quote, nearly everyone assumed that the killer remained in the vicinity, a troubled student, perhaps, or a faculty rival. A suspicious figure was spotted lurking around dormitories. A suspicious car with out-of-state license plates was reported. When the FBI joined the investigation a week later, the range of conjecture went national and then international. Theories of a Holocaust tie-in circulated. The Xantops were political liberals who often argued that their native country should be more forthright in confronting the evils of its Nazi past, had they been murdered by a vengeful neo-Nazi, end quote. Wow. Lots of theories. Yeah. Um, ABC News primetime show ran a story about a link between the crime and neo-Nazism. This wild theory was bolstered by mention in prosecutorial documents these documents that were released in March 2001, that the Xantops were killed on the anniversary date of the liberation of Auschwitz, and that Suzanne Xantop, quote, had an entire bookcase regarding the Third Reich in Germany in her office located at Dartmouth College. Coincidence, I'd say. Yes, this is just one theory of the crime, too, Amy. Others took hold after word spread that the police had questioned a male student thoroughly about Santeria which the media attributed to the brutality with which the two were killed. Other students had also been interviewed, and the New York Post ran an article citing police efforts to locate a student who had recently had a very vocal, threatening argument with Hoff Zantop, one that had been reported to school officials. Other media sources reported that a paranoid bipolar student of Hoff's had come for him. A former dishwasher in the dining department Ludwig Pullman was questioned because he had ranted about the school online. Finally, one male Dartmouth student, Pedro de los Santos, was labeled the chief suspect by the Dartmouth. After he told the paper, police interviewed him for four hours and confiscated his knife. They had singled him out because he had a scratch on his face, which was reportedly from sledding. But he had been talking to Hoff on the day before the killings. Now, Amy, police are just doing their jobs, right? Looking into all of this, of course. But the Dartmouth community was shaken by the idea that two esteemed faculty members could have been murdered by one of their own. And everyone was looking for a reason, right? We always want a motive. Why would this happen? Why was this lovely, warm, non-threatening couple stabbed to death in their home 
by someone they appeared to have let in. It got even more outlandish, though. The Selena Journal reported that police discovered that a rental car had been returned at the Manchester airport that had a suspicious stain in it. It had been driven by someone traveling from Arizona. Rumors swirled that investigators from New Hampshire had traveled to Arizona to conduct an interview with a professor in Arizona. His name was Stanley Williams, and this was true. Stanley Williams had earned his Ph.D. at Dartmouth, and his wife was Hoff's advisee. He told investigators that he'd been in Hanover on the weekend of the murders for his mother's 90th birthday. And Professor Williams said he and his wife had seen the Xantops that weekend during their visit to Dartmouth. All of this seemed particularly intriguing. All this, you know, because Suzanne attended an academic conference outside Tucson from October 19th to October 22nd, just a few months earlier. But that stain in the car, Amy, turned out to be some spilled moose stew. I'm sorry, moose stew? Yeah, interestingly, specifically moose stew. Okay, I didn't know that was a thing. There was no connection to the Xantop slang. But the Concord Monitor reported, quote, the investigators came and left Arizona quickly. The media did not. Reporters descended on the Williamses. The Arizona Republic and local TV stations picked up the story. Some reporters even camped on the Williamses' driveway. The Boston Globe piled on, running a story with the headline, Love Affair Eyes in New Hampshire Killings, Husband Involved with Unidentified Woman citing unidentified law enforcement officials who were quoted as saying that the murders likely resulted from an adulterous affair between Hoff and an unidentified woman. It's so unfair the way that the media does this to victims, just drags them through the mud. I mean, we see this when we talk about this on women in crime, but I'm seeing it even more now. And and when we're discussing these cases, um, because in the absence of information, the media will pick up on anything and run with it. I will say the Globe later published an apology for that article. Um, Although the author, who went on to write a book about the case, said his sources had been reliable and he would run it again under the same circumstances. After the Globe story about the love triangle, Professor Williams' wife, Linda, was harassed by some media outlets as to whether she was the person having the liaison with Hoff, though. Linda wrote a letter to the Dartmouth, um, which had run the story, saying, quote, look what you have done to our lives because of a moose stew stain. You have slandered my husband's work, insinuated he was a suspect in a murder and accused me of having an affair with my advisor. This is extremely damaging. Look at the lives that are taken down on just rumor and speculation. There was no real evidence, Amy, to suggest any of this was true. The problem was that even with 35 state and local investigators working the case, the public was getting no information, so it seemed like nothing was being done. Investigators executed search warrants at the Xantop's homes and their offices, which is standard, looking for clues as to who might have killed them. But the affidavits accompanying the warrants were sealed, so again, no information. It's not that they maybe don't have any evidence. It's not they're not releasing it. They're not telling Mm -hmm. people what they have. They remain tight-lipped about all these behind-the-scenes inquiries, to the point that newspapers were running stories weekly, theorizing that investigators were out of leads. They were at a standstill. Kelly Iote, the head of the New Hampshire AG Homicide Division, who would be the lead prosecutor on this case, countered that the investigation was far from cold and pointed out the large numbers of law enforcement personnel working this case. And in fact, um, even though it was reported that the FBI had 
offered to help but had been rebuffed. The FBI did join the case a few weeks after the murders, bringing profiling expertise and federal resources to the table. A press release stated that the FBI believed the killer may be exhibiting behavioral changes, have fresh cuts, bruises, or wounds, missed work or school, or left the area in haste. Sounds typical. They always say the same few things. I'm not sure that ever actually leads to a suspect either, does it? It sound, It seems like it's always the same profile. Like what you just described, it sounds like it's the same few items that are always said. Well, I have to be honest. I don't think though that was a good profile because it's it's obvious that they're going to have wounds or bruises or scratches. That's not really a profile. That's just what you would expect after a violent encounter. So I don't think this was a very strong profile or very helpful. Um, but we don't know if that was the complete one either. And it wasn't really reassuring to the public that on February 9th, more than a week out, investigators asked the public to call in tips about any unfamiliar cars seen in Etna or any strange behavior among those who knew the Zantops. And they would not rule out the investigation going international, given that the Zantops were renowned in their native land. It didn't seem that they knew which avenue to pursue, to be quite honest. It almost seemed like they were flailing around. Doesn't this sound a bit to you like a recent case we just covered? Which one was that? The Jane Britton case. It's almost the same exact issue. Say. I mean, the same exact issue with not knowing what happened. So just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. I agree. Um, but also remember, we're only a week into the investigation. You know, you don't have it's not like TV, right? We don't have a crime solved in a week. There's a lot that has to be done. Think about all the interviews, all the scene processing this is the era of 2000s, so let's see if we're going to have some, you know, biological material at the crime scene. And behind the scenes, Amy, there was a whole lot of good old-fashioned detective work um, going on, which did solve the case fairly quickly. Just going to give this away a little early on. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. We want to take a moment to tell you a little bit about our friends over at CrimeCon. What is CrimeCon, you might ask? It's only the greatest convention in the world of true crime where thousands of people come together to discuss their favorite cases, rub elbows with some of the biggest stars in the world of true crime, and interact with some of their favorite podcasters. CrimeCon is a great place to meet people just like you who have an interest in true crime, and you get to hang out with some of the biggest names in true crime, people like Nancy Grace, Paul Holes, and Dr. Henry Lee, just to name a few. It's a three-day event, and the next one is less than a year away. CrimeCon 2023 will be in Orlando, Florida, at the World Center Marriott, September 22nd to September 24th, 2023. And listeners of Campus Killings can save 10% on your standard badges for CrimeCon 2023 when you use our promo code at checkout when you go to CrimeCon.com. That promo code is CampusKillings, all one word, no spaces. Book your trip now before spots sell out. And who knows, maybe we'll see you there in September. Initially, investigators leaned toward the couple having been targeted because the crime was too outlandish to be random, but they quickly discovered that it was random. So here's what was actually done in the first few days that nobody knew. The investigators sent the bloody partial boot print taken from the paper in the study, the living room and outside the house to the FBI to run through the agency's database on soul patterns. I didn't know they had a database on soul patterns. Have you heard that? No, I did not know that. And the, the reason it's so interesting is because it came back to a Vasque hiking boot. 
So they were able to trace the actual type of shoe, um, which I think is fantastic. The most important piece of evidence found in the home office, um, there were two empty knife sheaths that were identical model and color with black straps and distinctive markings. They were made of a material called Kydex that was used specifically for this kind of knife and bore logos reading SOG specialty knives. The sheaths were for a specific model of knife, the SOG Seal 2000. So this is very helpful. The New Hampshire Deputy Medical Examiner, Dr. Thomas Gilson, determined that a knife of this type was consistent with the wounds suffered by the couple. Investigators believe the killer was likely a man based on the size and weight of the 12-inch blade and the blade the sheaths were made for. This from the Concord Monitor, which broke down the information in the arrest warrants. Between February 2nd and February 15th, investigators tracked the sale of knives from SOG distributors. And they got lucky when they contacted a localish online seller of SOG knives, Fox Firearms, based in Massachusetts. Quote, of the company's 84 online sales, only one involved the purchase of two identical SOG Seal 2000 knives. The buyer was someone named Jim Parker. He paid with a $180 money order and requested two-day delivery. The knives were shipped to James Parker, 10 Bradshaw Cross Road, Chelsea, Vermont. The date of purchase, January 7th, 2001. This is huge. They've literally identified the owner or the buyer at the very least. On February 15th, investigators went to the address the knives were sent to in Chelsea. It was a modest residence. They spoke with James Parker, who was age 16, in the presence of his parents. James said that he he admitted that he bought the knives, um, and he said that he had brought them to his friend's house. He and his friend Robert Tullock used the knives in the woods, cutting saplings to build a fort, was what he said. Um, But they decided that the knives were too heavy, so James resold the knives for $60 each to a man in the Army-Navy store in Burlington, Vermont. James admitted that he hadn't told his mom about buying the knives because he knew that she would be upset. James and his father, John, traveled to the sheriff's office in New Hampshire so James could voluntarily give his fingerprints. He told the police that he didn't remember where he was on the 27th of January. So not great in terms of alibi. John said he could not provide an alibi for his son on the day of the murders because he didn't know where he was, but he confirmed that James had spent the day and night of the 27th with Robert Tullock, his best friend. Police noted in the Parker driveway a green 1996 Subaru station wagon. A witness Paul New City had reported seeing such a car hastily leaving the Zantops driveway on Trescott Road at 2.30 p.m. on the day before the bodies were found. Paul noticed the car because he saw a white male, dark-haired teen driving who was driving too fast and almost ran into his passing car as it shot out of the driveway and sped onto the roadway. He told the Valley News, quote, it made a pretty strong impression on me. People around here don't leave their yard at that rate of speed. From the Parker House, investigators proceeded to the Tullock home to verify the story James told them. They were met with 17-year-old Robert Tullock and his parents, Michael and Diane. Robert told the investigators the same story about selling the knives. He also willingly gave his fingerprints at the sheriff's office. But investigators noticed a deep cut on Robert's thigh. 
What did he have to say? How could he explain that? And how did they see that? That's so random. Oh, I'm sure he was wearing shorts, if that's the case, I would imagine, right? But actually, it was winter. Who knows? I don't know. Um, They did notice it, though. And what he said was that he had cut his leg accidentally with a hunting knife. No further explanation. His parents signed an authorization for the police to collect his footwear, which included a pair of Vasque boots. Remember? Were, were those boots popular in that area at the time? Do you know? I've never heard of I don't of them. know, but the FBI had, remember, their soul analysis mm-hmm. revealed that, that that was the type of boot that was used. So, hmm. you know, this is not looking very good. And what happened? Fingerprints on one of the sheaths were a match to James. Investigators could find no connection, though, of either teen to the Xantops or Dartmouth. So the shoe print didn't go anywhere. I'm assuming they'd be able to find if there was blood on the shoes. No, the shoe print, uh, the shoe print is going to go somewhere. Hold tight, Amy. I know. Before the test results on the knife and other materials came back, on the day after these visits from investigators... So this would be the morning of February 16th. Robert and James took off. They literally went on the run, Amy. Yeah. Do these two have these two have any history of violence? Oh, you're, you're going to hear about that soon. Don't worry. I'll tell you about these guys. Um, a district court judge immediately issued an arrest warrant for Robert that day, and a family court judge issued one for James the next day, um, I'm assuming because of the age. But the initial charges, they were both charged as adults, were two counts of first-degree murder for acting in concert in stabbing the Xantops. On the 17th, multiple search warrants were executed for the boys' homes and cars. Via these search warrants, the following evidence was found, and I think this evidence helped seal the deal. They found a bloody boot stain on the floor mat of the Parker Subaru. Literature referencing the Ku Klux Klan and violent interactive computer games at Robert's house. That does not speak to the crime, but certainly it doesn't look good in terms of their interests. From the warrant... Law enforcement personnel observed in plain view several documents, including literature, school essays, and books, including Der Fuhrer, which addresses the topics of Germany, Hitler, and the inactivity of America during the Holocaust. Prosecutors would deny neo-Nazi motives for the murders because the materials were not necessarily neo-Nazi or anti-Semitic. They were mostly academic in nature. So again, I wouldn't say that evidence was the strongest. Um, From Robert's room, though, the police collected a notebook containing, quote, notes about keeping an unidentified building under surveillance. Two foot-long knives in Robert's bedroom were found hidden under some magazines in a cardboard Florida citrus box under the bed. This kind of shows you that they were naive and, you know, a little maybe arrogant and immature. Like, do they think the police weren't going to look under the bed? Uh, These were the knives the boys said they sold, Amy. So when I said, you know, some of the evidence seals the deal... They were wrapped in homemade sheaths made of foam padding and duct tape. Both weapons had DNA from blood on them that matched to Suzanne, and one had DNA from blood from Hoff. I mean, what more do you need? The left boot from the pair of the Vasque hiking boots found in Robert's house was matched to the partial bloody footprint in the Xantop's living room. This is overwhelming evidence. But they were gone. A nationwide manhunt ensued. Police issued an APB, all points bulletin, for Robert Tulloch, whom they said might be in the company of James Parker. The New Hampshire AG received court permission to treat James like a legal adult for the purposes of apprehending him, which is why his name was publicized, even though he was a juvenile. Did they were they able to establish any connection between these boys and the victims? There was no connection. 
You'll see later on, but okay. there's none. It's a good. It's a very good question. I think it was the main question. Um, but no, they could not establish a connection. The teens were thought to be driving a silver 1987 Audi 500 registered to Joan Parker with Vermont plate number publicized. On the night the boys left, James' father had awakened at 3 a.m. to hear the car leaving the house, and he smartly followed his son to Robert's house. It's unclear, Amy, whether he confronted the two or looked the other way while they left town. He wasn't charged with anything, though, so perhaps he left after seeing James pull into Robert's house. When he got home, though, he said that he found a note from James saying that he was going to Robert's and not to call the police because he'd be back in the morning. John waited eight hours and then called at 11 a.m. That's quite a head start. Eight hours? Certainly is. But they're kids, too. So let's see how much of a head start two kids who are, you know, they were described as intelligent, but they're still kids and they still didn't know enough. They put the knives under the bed. So we'll see. Border authorities were alerted to the fugitives because of Vermont's proximity to Canada. The APB said the boys might be using the names Sam and Tyler. On the 18th, the Massachusetts State Police located the car. It was parked in a lot at the Sturbridge Isle truck stop in Sturbridge, Massachusetts. Witnesses at the truck stop said they saw the teens sitting in the truck stop restaurant. They were eating and smoking, and others saw them brushing their teeth and washing up in the bathroom. They then hitched a ride. The police verified the witness identifications by showing the boys photos around. So the boys were in the wind at this point. Since they had left the Audi at the truck stop, it was believed that they had hitched a ride with a trucker. And at least one witness believed that they were headed to California. On the 19th, Robert and James were spotted at a truck stop in Columbia, New Jersey. You know, I live right near Columbia. I didn't know know there was a such place. I know. That's because you um, don't live in the part of Jersey that's all the way near Pennsylvania. The New Hampshire AG, Philip McLaughlin, informed the media that the teens were hitching rides at truck stops on interstate highways and everyone should be on the lookout. But it was quickly over. Just as it began um, by the 20th of February, it was over. Headlines blared that James and Robert were apprehended at the Flying J truck stop on I-70 in Newcastle, Indiana. The diligence of one particular law enforcement officer was credited. According to the Concord Monitor, Henry County Sheriff's Department Sergeant William Ward was monitoring the CB airwaves in hopes of hearing something about the boys. When he heard a trucker say on a CB radio that he was transporting two boys who were looking for a ride to California. Ward got on the CB and suggested, quote, why don't you drop them off at the fuel desk and someone will pick them up? The trucker dropped the boys at the Flying J. The trucker who dropped the boys off at Flying J, James Hicks, said that they told him they were returning home to California. Um, He didn't know that he was transporting fugitives. He said that he felt sorry for them because he had three sons their age, uh, one of whom just died in an accident. So he helped them out with a ride. It was winter and they were kids. He ended up getting fired by the carrier he worked for, Martin Transport, for violating the no riders policy, which is not totally surprising. Robert and James, what happened to them? Well, they were extradited to New Hampshire, of course. Robert right away because he waived extradition proceedings And James followed suit after a few days. In court for his arraignment on February 21st, Robert smiled slightly at his parents and acknowledged that he understood the charges. There was no bail due to the severity of the charges. Not surprising. His lawyer told the Concord Monitor, quote, We represent a terrified teenage boy trying to deal with a traumatic set of circumstances. 
I'm assuming you'll get to what those circumstances are. Yeah, I certainly will. And um, you might guess what they're trying to set up here, a scenario. They're trying to already kind of shape the defense, I think. Anytime you see a co-defendant situation, you're going to see this. They're going to try to pin one against the other. You might be very smart, Amy. We'll see. What happened to James? He was arraigned in New Hampshire juvenile court at the end of February. Both teens maintained their innocence, and everyone was left to wonder, what was the connection? Did they know the Xantops? Were they really in the home? If they killed him, why? This crime is almost unthinkable. And the parents, well, the parents believed that their kids were innocent. The Parker parents retained an attorney, Doug Brown, who had been friends with them for more than 30 years to represent their interests. He told the Valley News, that it was inconceivable that Jimmy Parker could have had anything to do with this crime. He told the Valley News, quote, inconceivable that Jimmy Parker could have had anything to do with this crime. The nature of these documents does not undermine his parents' confidence in the innocence of their son. Diane Parker told the Dartmouth that we love our son and we want the press to know he's innocent until proven guilty. Even as James was being extradited to New Hampshire, his father said to the media, I can't believe that Jimmy was capable of committing this crime. He and his wife had flown to Indiana and brought their son some clothes and shoes for his court appearances. So, Amy, you had asked earlier what their history was. I mean, it genuinely sounds like most people believe these kids were good kids. They did have a history of breaking and entering, but I don't believe there was anything much more serious than that. Um, George Osler was the attorney for the Tulloch parents who also supported their son. Um, But each of these teens had his own set of legal counsel which is typical. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. Do you remember the movie Catch Me If You Can? Well, apparently, a lot of people think that this movie is based on a true story, but I found out it's 98% BS. Frank Abagnale says that he posed as an airline pilot, he was a doctor, and he wrote $2.5 million in bad checks. But after doing a little digging, it turns out that Frank Abagnale's story is a lie, and I have the documents to prove it. You see, I've been trying to get Frank Abagnale on my podcast for five years now, so if he won't come to me, well, I'll just have to go to him. Hey, Mr. Abagnale, for six years you evaded the the FBI, uh, pretending to be a pilot, a doctor, a professor, but how were you able to do that if you were sitting in prison the whole time? Uh... Just recently, I flew out to Vegas and confronted Frank Abagnale after one of his keynote speeches. This is the real Catch Me If You Can. And I'm going to expose his lies one by one. And I have the police records, court records, all the documents I need to prove he's a fraud. Look for the episode titled, The Real Catch Me If You Can. Only on Pretend. All right, so what would happen in the court proceedings? Robert waived a probable cause hearing. His attorney likely made a strategic decision to avoid getting all the evidentiary information out in the public realm. I think that was smart in this case. Robert was being held at the Grafton County Department of Corrections, where the superintendent said he pretty much didn't stand out from any of the other inmates. At 17 years old, Robert was the minimum age permitted by state law to be incarcerated in a county facility. The state commenced formal proceedings to have James tried as an adult. In May, the day he turned 17, he was moved also from a juvenile facility to the Belknap County Jail. It was decided not to house the two teens in the same facility. Why do you think they made that decision? 
Well, because they're dangerous together, right? And then I assume they don't want them collaborating on their yeah, defense they could or conspire. what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah, they could definitely work work together. And also, clearly, they they uh, don't do good things when they're together. So obviously not. There was still a grand jury indictment, though, because the state convened an investigative grand jury to craft careful and thorough charges, um, which is kind of interesting. The documents were released after lawsuits from the press protesting they, that, that the fact that they these documents were sealed, but only after the investigative grand jury had interviewed a number of witnesses. The attorney general's office was concerned that releasing the information and the indictment and warrants would compromise interviews with the witnesses. The parents of both Robert and James agreed to talk candidly and at length with investigators in order to avoid grand jury subpoenas. Both boys were indicted after this investigative grand jury was done on April 19th. They had conducted interviews with friends of the teens, Robert's girlfriend and Robert's younger brother, Keenan. New forensic evidence was supposedly the basis for another round of search warrants at the end of February. But authorities, again, kept very quiet as to what the evidence was. Um, Robert Tullock refused to cooperate with the state's demand for blood, hair, and handwriting samples. In a motion to persuade the court to order that he produce the samples, Kelly Iote, the lead prosecutor and New Hampshire assistant attorney general, released more details about the evidence they had gathered. It included Robert's fingerprints on the desk chair in the Zantop's home office. Robert's girlfriend, Christiana Usenza, told the grand jury that he had told her that he cut his leg running into a maple syrup tap in the woods. That's a different story than one you'd only hear in um, definitely one you'd only hear in New England. Right. Um, And this was, remember, inconsistent. Do you remember what he had told the cops? Yeah, that it was a hunting accident. Correct. Further evidence included that that bloody boot print in the Subaru containing DNA of Suzanne Zantop and the DNA on the blood of Robert Vasque's boot sole also matched Suzanne. Uh, additionally, one of the SOG knives found under Robert's bed actually contained DNA from both Hoff and Suzanne. Well, earlier they had said that it was only Suzanne's blood that had been found on the knives. So now they are saying that it was both of theirs. So this, that is somewhat new. Um, and a new indictment against Robert was handed down later and unsealed in February 2002. It added a conspiracy to commit murder charge on Robert in addition to the two first degree murder charges. So we finally it finally shed some light, though, on the details of the crime and the motivation and the seemingly randomness of it. So here's what information came out of this. And this is according to their own admissions. Uh, No, it's uh, it might have been from writings and things that they found speaking with witnesses. But Robert and James were looking for money to try to go to Australia. Their general plan first made in June 2000, was to knock on people's doors, get invited inside, and kill them after stealing their ATM cards and obtaining their pins. He looked shocked. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Listen to this, Amy. They dug a grave in advance for a victim who would later be determined. They had tried four other homes in the six months leading up to the murders. The homes were in Vermont and New Hampshire near the teen's hometown of Chelsea. Megan, didn't you say that these boys were let in to the home? It doesn't seem like they broke in. You'll see. Hold that thought. It's a good question. On July 19th, they selected a home on Green Goose Road in Versher, Vermont, a few miles from Chelsea. They cut the phone lines and then James hid and Robert knocked on the door. He told the homeowner, Andrew Patty, that his car had broken down and he needed to use the phone. 
Patty, a guarded New Yorker, refused to let him in. He knew there was a payphone and an auto mechanic right down the street, and it was late at night, and so Robert was forced to go away. And Patty decided to call the police, but found that the phone was dead. Gotta love your guarded New Yorkers, right? On January 19th, uh, 2001, that was right after they bought the knives, they knocked on the door of a house on North Hollow Road in Rochester, Vermont. The plan was to tell the homeowners that they were conducting an environmental survey for school to try to gain access to the house. But this homeowner also refused to let them in because he said he was too busy to participate in a survey. That same day, they tried the same ruse with two houses on Trescott Road where the Zantops lived. No one answered the door. Around this time, the two boys and some friends broke into the homes of two acquaintances in Chelsea. There, they ate the occupants' frozen pizza and watched movies. Finally, on Saturday morning, January 27th, they returned to Trescott Road, armed with knives, duct tape, and zip ties. It's not clear how and why did they selected Trescott Road, which was 20 miles from Chelsea, but James later said they were under the impression that Etna was a rich town. It was a high-end area. They selected a house and knocked on the door, but there was no answer. This was the home of Ashley McCollum. Then they got to the Zantops, where they pretended that they were conducting an environmental survey for school. Unfortunately, Hoff Zantop let them inside and brought them into his study, where he was going to participate in the survey. This should answer your question from before. The forced entry question? Mm-hmm. Hoff let them I, in. I, it seems like since the Zantops worked with people of that age group, that they would never think that there would be any harm in letting in these young boys. And they wanted to they support were very, their education. I would have to agree. Suzanne was in the kitchen making lunch. Robert asked a series of questions and James took notes for about 10 minutes. Hoff then said he wanted to give them the number of his friend who could help them. Oh, such a nice guy. Um, he could not find the number in his phone book, so he turned to look in his wallet for the phone number. Robert saw cash in the wallet and that's when the attack went down. They stabbed the couple and made off with Hoff's wallet. Um, But we don't know whether Hoff actually gave them his ATM pin. The two drove off and stopped to wash the blood off the knives and the floor mat. Obviously, they didn't do such a great job on that. They were only able to get $340 from the Zantops. This was the amount in Hoff's wallet. So I guess they did not get the ATM pin number. So the motive here is they wanted money. There was a financial motive. That's correct. And they were planning all along, were they planning that they were going to also murder their victims? Or it just it just seems like that escalated quickly. It escalated quickly, yeah. But it did sound like they had they dug a grave. So, yeah, they were yeah. planning to murder their victim. Yeah. Yeah, but they didn't it's, try to and, take the victim. Like, the victims were found in the home. It's not like they took the victim to the grave. Well, they remember, they shift plans a bunch of times because yeah. some of the doors they knocked on. I think some yeah. of their original plan they realized wasn't going to work out. So they mm-hmm. had to adapt. Um, they actually later returned to the house as well to get the knife sheaths. But there was already a police car there because they realized they left those. Remember those knife sheets that they found? That's what started leading the police down the path to find them anyway. So that worked out good. It worked out really well. It was a key piece of evidence. They later burned uh, Hoff's wallet and Robert's clothes. Um, so we learned that the boys were indeed selecting homes at random. Hoff and Suzanne died simply because of bad luck. One of the neighbors whose house the boys had knocked on told the Times, um, quote, Hoff Zantop's willingness to help young people made him vulnerable to the sort of manipulation prosecutors alleged Tullock and Parker used 
to get inside of the house. Hoff was deeply interested in environmental issues, and with the belief that these two young men could be students, Hoff would have gone the extra mile to be helpful, she said. Note here, Amy, that Robert and James got pretty lucky about this pretense of being environmental uh, students because this wasn't up. They didn't know Hoff's background, um, who uh, as a lifelong college professor who valued both education and the environment. And remember, all these other would be victims had turned them away. Let's fast forward to the boy's defense. Robert's attorney indicated that they intended to plead insanity at the April 2002 trial. According to the Times Argus, a local paper, a source close to the Tulloch family said that Robert Tulloch's expected insanity defense will piece together a long family history of mental illness and center around a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Tulloch had shown subtle and overt signs of mental illness for years before the murders took place, the source said. Megan, as far as I understand, in order to claim insanity, you did not at the time of the event, you did not know what you're doing was wrong. The mere fact that he hid the evidence and it, every action he took and he tried to flee, that it, it's not possible to, I mean, all everything he did after the crime is in direct contradiction to an insanity plea. Yes, uh, except insanity doesn't always mean that you knew the difference between right and wrong, because insanity can also mean that even if you knew the difference, you were unable to conform your behavior to the standard. It depends on which state you're in. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm with you, Amy. I'm not buying it either. Um, But, you know, his attorney made it official. He had a psychiatrist uh, who said that Robert suffered from, quote, a severe mental defect or disease and that his acts were a direct result of the mental defect or disease. They were using the insanity defense. This was the first indication that there was any admission by Robert or the defense team that he might have been involved in the murders. And so many members of the public who knew the teens were shocked. Remember all those people who said that they were good boys? Well, now he's saying I was involved. Um, Note that according to the Boston Globe, New Hampshire is, quote, the only state in the nation that has no statutory standard under which its juries and judges can determine whether a defendant was insane when he or she committed a crime. So the defense team would have its hands full in convincing the jury that Robert was insane by clear and convincing evidence because there's no legislative guideline. And it's a very high bar, that means. In fact, a New Hampshire assistant attorney told The Globe that the only cases he could recall in which the insanity defense were upheld in the state were those in which the attorney general's office acquiesced that the defendant was insane. So that's you have the attorney general's office agreeing. Um, So I think this is a real uphill battle. In November, though, prosecutors got the go ahead to try James Parker, now 17, as an adult. This was a blow to his defense because he had been, had he been tried as a juvenile, he could have, would not have, but could have gone free by age 18, even if he was found guilty because the juvenile court would no longer have jurisdiction over him. The prosecuting attorney held this threat over his head, not making a formal announcement that he would be tried as an adult, but trying to use it to negotiate with him. Do you think this tactic worked, Amy? I'm going to say yes. You would be right. In December, He agreed to spill everything to prosecutors in exchange for reduced charges of being an accomplice to second degree murder for the death of Suzanne, as opposed to being tried on two counts of first degree murder. The deal required him to testify against Robert, now 18. 
He gave a detailed statement to investigators that shed some more light on the information in a new indictment against Robert Tulloch and resulted in a conspiracy charge being piled onto um, Robert's charges. According to James' statement, prosecutors said that he was, first of all, his tone was matter-of-fact with limited affect. Only when he spoke specifically about the murder did his demeanor change. So here's some of the motive. The two were bored in their small town, and while they wanted to be Navy SEALs and travel the world, they considered the training to be, quote, a real pain in the ass. So they came up with the plan to go to Australia. They ruled out getting the 10000 that they thought they would need the old-fashioned way, which is work. Petty thievery and breaking into homes to steal credit card numbers, pawnable items, and cash wasn't really paying off the way they wanted. Remember I told you they had a history of breaking and entering? They didn't get caught for all the times. Um, they stole an ATV, but they couldn't sell it without a title. They considered carjacking, mail fraud. But the plan was really hatched when they were driving back from a music festival in the summer of 2000, and they were frustrated because... These burglaries were not lucrative. They saw an old couple and Robert said, quote, we should park the car and get out and like jump them. And we would like knock them out with rocks or even killing them with the rocks. So this was the first time they discussed murder. So it did escalate. Their plan was first, you know, not to murder, but they were unsuccessful. They were basically, they said they just wanted more out of life. They wanted to go places, meet cool people. You know, they they were just bored. Um, they thought everything was silly. They thought going to school was a waste of time. You're not going to use this. So they just wanted to escape these boring lives. James was apparently or claimed to be under the influence of Robert, whom he looked up to. Robert was obsessed with the idea of killing, he said, and he made James focus on the plan when he would rather do other things. They selected the Zantops home because it looked expensive. When Hoff turned his back to look in his wallet, Robert grabbed the knives from James' backpack and stabbed Hoff. James said, though, that he had momentary second thoughts as Hoff was very nice. So James said that he that he had like momentary second thoughts, but he also said that he didn't really feel anything as he watched Robert stab Hoff in the chest. And he said that Hoff, I mean, began screaming terribly. Suzanne ran into the room and at this point um, fell to her knees while Robert was still stabbing Hoff. He yelled, slit her throat to James. So he did after hesitating for a split second. So both of them really participated in the or carried out the murders. Robert then proceeded to stab Suzanne in the head repeatedly. Robert later told James that he didn't know why he went into such a frenzy. He said he went animal. Afterwards, they agreed that the murders were too easy. But James said that they were, you know, really scared about it. This isn't the real way they wanted to make money, that they were naive um, but they also didn't think they were going to get caught, Amy. Uh, it wasn't until they realized that they had forgotten the knife sheaths that they were worried, but they were scared to go back right away because they didn't want to see the bodies. I feel like this is very mixed, just so you know. It's like they don't feel anything, yet they're scared. Um, it was too late, as I said. Uh, the police were already there. The next day, they looked in Barnes and Nobles for books on how soldiers deal with killing um, because I guess they were looking for ways to cope. And they decided that they were going to go on a road trip out west. On January 31st, they drove the Audi from the home to the bus station. And James registered the Audi to be parked um, in a lot for about two weeks. They then purchased two round trip bus tickets to Amarillo, Texas, because the tickets to California were too expensive. I don't know how far the boys got, um, but they returned to the bus station within the week and asked for a partial refund because their trip has been in- had been impeded by bad weather. 
They later told friends that they decided to go home because the cut on Robert's leg got infected. James said the stress began to take a toll on their relationship. And he said that he began to recognize some things he didn't like about Robert, which I'm glad to hear. Like that on his uh, an occasion, he hit his dog and constantly talked about killing. There have definitely been a couple of cases where we've we've seen double perpetrators, you know, like the Slenderman case where one was a leader uh, or more so the leader. And it seems, according to James, that Robert was in this case. Yeah. Anytime you see multiple offenders, there's there's always a ringleader. And now a brief word from our sponsors. Okay, so after cooperating, James waves an indictment and he he pleads guilty to one count of being an accomplice to second degree murder. His lawyer wrote, quote, Jimmy has made the decision to accept responsibility for his actions and is hopeful that the plea will enable his family and that of the Zantops to begin the healing process. Kelly Iote, the lead prosecutor, said that the plea agreement and reduced charge were appropriate because James was only 16 at the time of the crime and had demonstrated willingness to take responsibility for his actions. Some are really angered by this plea agreement because it had been leaked by a couple of news sources that James was the one who killed Suzanne, um, and many people thought that he got off way too easy with a mere accomplished charge. But let's see what happens at sentencing. Robert's lawyers dropped the insanity defense, and they agreed to a deal in late March 2002. Prosecutors dropped the plan to have James testify against Robert when Robert dropped his insanity defense. At that time, James was sentenced as an adult to 25 years in prison. He was crying and emotional. He said that he was sorry, and there's just not more that he could say. In contrast, uh, Robert was presented as someone who was kind of an iron-cold killer. He supposedly locked eyes with his sisters and the Zantop's family and friends. Um, They said that he had a smirk. He pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and was automatically sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, per New Hampshire law. The Globe reported that, quote, Tullock's family appeared as if they were trying to shrink inside themselves. Tullock's mother, Diane, kept her eyes closed throughout her son's sentencing, and his father, Michael, wore dark glasses. Tullock himself never saw any of that. He never turned back to look at his family, and after hearing, after the hearing, they drove away without word. In contrast, Parker's mother, Joan, cried openly while her son struggled through his apology. When he finished, his face went pale. His face pale and eyes wet, he looked over his left shoulder, searched his mother out, and upon seeing her tearful face, began to cry harder. The Parkers addressed the media after the court hearing, um, saying, quote, I'm Jimmy's father. On behalf of my wife, Joan, we are very sorry. Joan said, we hope that in time, the one so deeply hurt by this will be able to find peace in their hearts. Both men were immediately moved to the New Hampshire State Prison in Concord, where they reportedly have very little interaction. Amy, you had asked me if we were going to talk about their background a little bit. Who are these guys? So let me briefly summarize. They appeared to be normal teen boys. They had been best friends for a long time. They were a bit wild. They had been dealt with a couple times by law enforcement for those uh, breaking and enterings, but... um, It didn't seem anything serious, and every source citing people who knew the kids reported that they were of above-average intelligence. Speaking about the families, they said they were normal working-class people who seemed unlikely to be raising two killers. And people in town just could not believe that the kids were involved. You know, they would say there's no way 
There's no way that these two could be killers. There were a lot of, I'm not going to read you all the reports because there were a lot of reports from people who knew the kids and had nice things to say. No one, not their parents and trained ed- educators, school personnel, seemed to anticipate the trajectory these boys' lives would take. However, Amy, there was like Robert's writings. If anyone had kind of looked at them, they would have probably seen that something was amiss. Um, something was was off. He he said things like, I'm ready to depart and, you know, I'm enjoying being doing exactly what I want. Robert seemed more defiant of authority. So the red flags were there. And Amy, later on, um, they actually found out someone reported that Robert was planning to try a prison escape. It seems like he didn't learn very much and he obviously was not successful. OK, the thing that also changed, however, These cases came up again in 2014 for resentencing. Do you know why? Do you remember the court case that changed? Remember, they were juveniles. One of them was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Megan, you're referring to Miller v. Alabama, 2012? That's correct. Um, The court ruled in this case that um, it was unconstitutional to sentence minors to life without the possibility of parole. So under 18 at the times of the crime. So obviously their lawyers were going to petition the court Um, in the fall of 2018. James attorney petitioned the court, but she was looking for early release citing that he had been, you know, a model prisoner. He's gotten his master's degree. He was turned his life around. It went, you know, on and on. In the fall of 2018, as I had said, they, his lawyer petitioned for this early release, but later um, rescinded the petition and uh, stated that James Parker would remain in prison until his minimum release date in May 2024 and did not plan to appeal the decision any further. In January 2021, on the 20th anniversary of the murders, there was a vigil at the garden named after the Zantops. It was attended by friends and colleagues laying wreaths and flowers and holding candles. Friends of the Zantops raised funds to fund an endowment in the couple's name at Hanover High School, where the Zantop girls, Mariana and Veronica, had gone to school. As pointed out in the book on the case written by two reporters who covered it, it seemed that Tulloch was the leader and he kind of fed off the admiration of his younger partner, whereas it seemed like Parker really wanted the praise and approval of his older mentor. Had they been apart, Amy, arguably this crime would never have occurred. In, in tandem, they brought out the worst in each other. So I think this could also have been preventable. If the red flags had been seen earlier, if these two had maybe been separated when they were caught with earlier bad behavior, if there had been some intervention, I think it's possible that these crimes could have been prevented um, just by learning or watching the behavior. And I also think there was some oversight or things missed by, you know, maybe the families and educators And it is really the tragedy that some of those red flags weren't spotted earlier and, you know, dealt with. I also think, unfortunately, it reminds us that we need to be vigilant. And as much as we want to help people and we want to see the good in people, sometimes because of people like these two boys, we really still need to have our guard up. Yes, I I think I would have to agree with that. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. We hope you'll join us next time on Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg, with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings. 
or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.